Well, welcome everybody. Welcome to Easter. Thanks for coming out and uh, celebrating with us today. Welcome everybody who's watching online. It's good to have you with us as well. Thanks for uh, being a part of this. And uh, Easter is the time that, uh, of course, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's a big deal, and we've been talking about it here. Uh, Really, we started talking about it last weekend, and of course, we're going to finish it this weekend. And uh, it's it's a big deal in the central point of of all of the Christian faith. So last weekend, we started talking about kind of the beginning of Easter. We call it the triumphal entry. And it's when Jesus came in, when he entered Jerusalem for the first time, he, he came in as like a rock star, right? Everybody's waving the palm branch. Palm branch is kind of the ancient version of the foam finger. So like, like you're number one, right? And so they're cheering for Jesus and excited for him. And the Bible says that the whole city stirred and they all asked the question, who is this? Who is this? Who, who is this guy? What am I supposed to do with him? How do I download this? How is this supposed to affect me? How does this play out? We had a long conversation about it last weekend, and uh, we kind of dissected the crowd a little bit, kind of found ourselves in it. And if you want to listen to that conversation, go out to our website at graceohio.org, and you can w- listen to it there or listen through the app if you want and it's all right there. Now, we're going to move forward a week. And in the Bible, it's literally a week, right? So a week ago, Jesus is a rock star. A week later, he has been crucified. And over the course of that week, a bunch of stuff has happened, a bunch of kind of famous stuff in Christianity has happened. So the Last Supper, for instance, happened over the course of that last week where Jesus broke bread and, and poured out the wine, and that all happened there in that, that last week. Uh, Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane in that last week. So if you're familiar with that story, he went there and he was praying there. That's where he said, Father, if you will take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. So that happened. He was betrayed in that week. So Judas's kiss and, and the, uh, the Jewish leaders had him arrested, and they handed him over to Pilate. Right? That has all happened here. And then, of course, Jesus' passion, his suffering. So he's been beaten. He's been mocked. He's been spat upon. The crown of thorns has been put on his head. And he has been taken and crucified. And this has all happened in this last week. And so this weekend, as we pick the story up, we're going we're gonna to pick it up after those events. And I want you to kind of get in your mind's eye a little bit. Jesus is now on the cross. He has given up his spirit. He's already said, Father, forgive them. He's already cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Roman soldiers have pierced his side. Blood and water have flown. And now where we're going to kind of meet the story is Jesus' lifeless body is on the cross. And, uh, and he has died, and probably the thieves by this point have died as well. And the whole kind of suffering crucifixion is over, and now here he is. So I want you to grab your Bibles if you got them, and uh, turn to Luke chapter 23 is where you want to go. Luke chapter 23, and then simultaneously go to John chapter 20. And we're going to kind of look at both of these things. If you don't have a Bible, there's some there in the chairs. It's page 737 is the Luke passage. And then 756 is the passage in John. And so look at those two things. And let's just learn what what Jesus uh, did and what happened and what the implications are on it for our lives. So this is what I want to walk us through, right? I know, I know that for many of us here at Grace, we're real new to following Jesus. It's like this new, exciting thing. So I want to make sure that you know the story. Uh, some of us haven't looked at this for a long time. So I want you to think through the ramifications and, and we'll just read it through and dig at it a little bit. Okay, so we'll start in Luke 23 and let's start with verse 50. Now remember Jesus's lifeless bodies on the cross, Luke 2350, now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man, who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the, the Judean town of Arimathea, and he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, then he took it down, he wrapped it in linen cloth and, and laid it in the tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. It was the preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. So let me fill in the kind of the rest of the pictures there. So Joseph of Arimathea 
goes to Pilate because the Roman government's in charge of all this, right? So Jesus is on the cross. He can't just go get him. So he goes and he gets permission from Pilate. And he, in another place in the Bible, we know two guys, he and a guy named Nicodemus, go and take Jesus' body down and they prepare it for burial. And in the ancient Jewish world, there was no embalming or anything like that. So what they would do is they would wrap the body in linen cloth and then wrap kind of the head a little bit separately. And they would put the body in a tomb. A tomb was either a cave or cut out of the rock. In this case, it was a rich man's tomb that had never been used, which is a fulfillment of prophecy. And it's cut out of this rock. They would lay the body in there and then they would kind of surround the body and pack the body with spices so that would kind of offset the, the decomposition process and the odors that would come from it. So they, they get Jesus' body off the cross. They interact with his body. They take it, lay it in the tomb, and then they would roll a big stone in front of the tomb. This was kind of for everybody. They'd kind of do it this way. So it wasn't real uncommon. They'd roll the stone in front of the tomb. Now, what was unusual about Jesus' burial is the Romans were all wigged out that the disciples would come and take his body and go, look, he rose again from the dead. So the Jewish leaders were wigged out about it. The Romans were wigged out about it. So what they did was after they rolled the stone in place, they sealed it. So there was like a, think of it like a wax seal. And then the governor would have like a ring. He would imprint it. And so it was sealed, which meant like, don't bug it. It belongs to the government. And then in addition to that, they put two, they put Roman guards in front of it. So they're out there. So like nobody was going to sneak in like behind the guards, break the seal, roll this huge rock. So they had it locked up really tight because of these rumors that he might raise again from the dead and they didn't want anybody being tricky with it. Okay, so verse 55, that the women had come with Jesus from, who had come with Jesus from Galilee, followed Joseph, saw the tomb, how the body was laid. So they're all watching this. And then those ladies went home, prepared spices and perfume. Verse 1 of chapter 24, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, these same women took the spices that they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them in their fright. The women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He has risen. Remember that he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? He said that the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of the sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. And then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the others, it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the, the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they, the apostles, did not believe them because, the, because their words seemed like nonsense. Now flip over to John chapter 20. So they go back, they tell the apostles, they're like, he rose again from the dead. They were like, oh, that's hard to do the math on. So verse 3, chapter 20 of John, so Peter and the other disciple started for the apostle. The other disciple was John, the guy who wrote this book. So that Peter and the other disciple, John, had it started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and re reached the tomb first. And I think it's so hilarious that John wrote the book and he put that detail in it. He's like, and I smoked you, Peter. And it's in the Bible. No one will ever forget it. But both were running. John reached the tomb first. He bent over, he looked in at the strips of linen laying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him, went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen laying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was laying in its place separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. Verse 10, then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over, looked into the tomb, and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. 
They ask her, woman, and by the way, woman in the ancient world was an endearing term. So think of it as like mother or sister, right? So woman, mother, sister, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said. I don't know where they, they put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but didn't realize that it was Jesus. And he asked her, woman, why, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? And thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you put him and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. And Jesus said, do not take hold of me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. And said, go to my brothers and tell them I'm ascending to the father and your father and to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I've seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. On the evening then of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. So that we call this the upper room. The, the, the disciples are there the doors are locked. Remember, they, they like three days ago. They just, ex, you know, they they just put Jesus on the cross, so they're freaked out and and scared. So they're locked in the room. I actually love the Luke account of this. That the Bible says that Jesus appeared to them. So he just comes through the door, right, despite it being locked, and says, peace be with you. And the Bible says they were startled because they thought they saw a ghost, which I think is hilarious. So they're, they're all in there tight. Jesus walks in. He's like, peace. And they all freak out. He's like, be with you. That's, that's what I would do if I was Jesus anyways. And so that, that happened. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And with this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So huge, huge, huge deal, right? And Jesus had been talking all through his time hanging out with the disciples. He'd been talking about his resurrection, but the Bible says that they didn't really do the math on it. He's like, I'm going to lay down my life and I'm going to take it up again. The temple's going to be torn down and be rebuilt in three days. Like they weren't doing all of this math until the actual resurrection happened. So Jesus is looking and saying, listen, guys, I'm not talking metaphorically. This isn't like an allegory of like, you know, the, 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 the rebirth of something. I mean, like I am going to lay my life down by my own authority. I'm going to lay my life down. And by that same authority, I'm going to take it back up again. And I'm going to raise again from the dead. Now, the fancy term, if you want to impress your friends, we call this the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it, wa it wasn't the concept of Jesus or the, like the theory of Jesus or like the teachings or the cause of Jesus that came back. We believe, because Jesus said that he physically, he physically died, he was put into the tomb, and he rose again. And we would look at that and say, that is massive. In fact, we would say, as Christians, the Christians will believe that the resurrection is like everything. That the resurrection is, is everything. It's the foundation of it all. We would look and say, even, you know, before the Bible, before the church, before sound doctrine, good theology, all that kind of stuff, we would go as Christians back to the resurrection and say, the reason that we believe Jesus is God is because of an event, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That's what delineates Jesus out from other great human beings who have given their lives for great causes. Jesus was different because he laid his life down and took it back up again, and that's why a Christian would worship him as God. So there's other human beings, great people, amazing people, who have done incredible things. You know, there's, there's the George Washingtons of the world, and the Abraham Lincolns, and, and Confucius, and Buddha. You know, they had some stuff to say. And there's moral leaders like Dr. King and Mother Teresa. Their examples are huge. And, and they live for their cause, like Dr. King and others died for their cause. And we have built the monument and carved it in granite, and, and, and he should have it 
Like we should look at those things and be like the Washington Memorial, the Lincoln Memorial, the, the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial. Like they deserve it. Like if we were ever gonna celebrate a human being, like these would be the people that, that we should celebrate. They're, they're wonderful and their cause and what they said is impactful and wise and insightful. But they didn't raise again from the dead. Right? They didn't do that. Dr. King, Washington, and Lincoln, for sure, they thought Jesus was God. They never were like, I'm God. They never would have said that. They were all Mother Teresa. Like, they followed Jesus. And so there was never like this, hey, by the way, I'm going to lay my life down, but don't worry, I'm going to take it back up again thing. Right? So the resurrection of Jesus, it, it's not just his death. Many people have laid their life down. Uh, it's not just his goodness. Like the, many of these people were good people. It, it, it's not just his teaching. They're, they're, you know, many people's teachings reflect Jesus' teachings and, and are insightful. What separates Jesus is the resurrection, that he gave his life and he took it back up again, demonstrating that the then is God. So when we look at the Bible, and we're like, well, Jesus said it, so these are the words of God. We look at the church. Why do we have the church? Well, Jesus started the church. People didn't start the church. Jesus started the church. And so we're like, yeah, we, we really interact with each other as a church because our Lord, our Savior, Jesus did that. Our view of heaven, salvation, it's all tied to Jesus. He said it. He's God. The resurrection demonstrates it. And that's why we follow them. So the resurrection is huge, huge, massive. It's the thing. It's the thing. It's not even a thing. It's the thing, right? And we would look and say, yeah, it's there. Because if you, if you pull out the resurrection, everything breaks down. Jesus is on par with one of these other really amazing human beings, but a human being, if you pull the resurrection out. You put the resurrection in place then you are talking about God and all of the rights and claims that he has as God have enormous implications and enormous ramifications on our, on our lives. Now, one of, the, one of the greatest thinkers was a guy named Paul, one of the great Christian thinkers. And Paul was one of the people that appeared, Jesus appeared to after he died. So after Jesus rose from the dead, he went, he showed up and talked to the 11 of the 12 disciples. And they would say, no, he rose again. From I saw him die. I, I talked to him after he died. Like he talked to him. In fact, 10 of the 11 died because they would not recant that they saw him raise again from the dead. Uh, Jesus went and talked to his brother James. So Jesus was born of a virgin, but, Jane, but Joseph and Mary had other kids. And one of them was a guy named James. They, he didn't believe Jesus was God before the resurrection. He didn't believe that. Can you imagine growing up with that? Your mom's like, why can't you be more like Jesus? You're like, oh, the pressure. And he, you know, he's so great. Of course he is. He's Jesus. Mom thinks he walks on water. That would just drive you crazy. And so, like, James, so there's that whole thing. After he rose from the dead, James is like, my brother is God. My brother is God. In fact, James was also martyred because he wouldn't recant that. Think about that. Your brother of all the people to believe you. Your brother, right? So, and, and then the Bible says he appeared to 500 other eyewitnesses, okay? So people saw him. The Romans wrote about it. The Jewish leaders wrote about it. It's in history all over the place. If, if we took the, 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 the case of Jesus' bodily resurrection to court today with 500 eyewitnesses, with a doctor, with, with a government official, with a small business owner, we, we would win that case all day long. This happened, Right? So it's a thing. And so Paul was one of these guys that Jesus appeared to. Now, Paul was not pro-Jesus before the resurrection. Paul was hyper-opposed to Jesus. In fact, Paul's full-time job was to go around and kill Christians for believing in Jesus. I don't know how you get that job, how you apply for it, what skills you need, but apparently there was like benefits like, oh, you got dental? I'm in, right? So they, like he's got this job. So that's what he did. In fact, there's this really famous account uh, that's recorded in the Bible of Paul uh, overseeing the martyrdom of a guy named Stephen. 
and they stoned Stephen to death. They threw rocks at him until they killed him. Can you imagine dying that way? And so Paul oversaw all that. Well, after Jesus rose from the dead, he interacted with Paul. And Paul went from the greatest opposition to Jesus, the greatest opponent to the greatest proponent of Jesus. He became hyper for Jesus. In fact, most of the New Testament, Paul wrote. So one of the most influential thinkers and writers ever on the planet. More people know Paul's writings than anybody else's writings in the world. Huge, huge, huge. And, and he was one that said, listen, Jesus is God and he rose again from the dead. And he's the one that said, if he didn't, like we have, if, if the resurrection didn't happen, we have major issues on our hands. Let me show you this where he wrote it. It's in 1 Corinthians 15. If you flip to the right in, in your Bibles uh, to page 801, you'll find it there. So 1 Corinthians 15, page 801, verse 1. So this is Paul. Remember, he's anti-Jesus, sees him resurrected. Now he's pro-Jesus. So he says this in verse 1. He says, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I've preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you believe in vain. So a gospel, this gospel, just you could put in the word truth. So he's like, I want you to remember this truth, this fact that I, that I taught you, and this fact is what saves your soul, right? So I want you to know this, and if, the, if this fact isn't the fact, then what you believe is in vain, right? So I want you to remember this gospel. And then what he does, starting with verse 3, he starts to recount that gospel. So he says this in verse 3. He says, for what I, what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, so Paul says, listen, there's some things that are more important than anything else. Before the Bible, before my teachings about the church, be, before my teachings about marriage, before my teachings about interacting with each other, before my teachings about sound doctrine and good theology, there's a foundation that all of that has to come from. And if you don't have that foundation, the rest of it doesn't work, okay? So he says there's three parts of that foundation. Here's the first one. This is the first importance. First of all, number one, that Christ died for our sins. So that, that's a big one. Not just that Christ died, but that he died for our sins. Okay, now why? What is that? What is, what is sin? So sin is our natural inclination to do what's wrong. And left to ourselves as human beings, when given the option, we will tend to do what's wrong. And the Bible says that sin is rebellion and rejection of God. And sin separates us from God because God's perfect and our sin makes us imperfect and the two things can't interact. So given, given an option or left to ourselves, we by nature will sin. Now, you might look at me and say, Jeff, are you sure about that? Because I'm a good person. And I bet you are, but let me, let me show it to you, right? So when you leave a human being alone, we will do what's wrong, right? And, and, and it's the way that we work. So there's never been a mother ever who had to teach her kids to sin, they, moms have to, mom and dad say they have to teach our kids to do what's right, right? So there is no story on planet earth where you are playing with your sister, sharing your hot wheels and speaking love and encouragement to each other, and your mother walks up to you and says, stop it, take your hot wheels from your sister and then smack her. That, that has never happened in the history of the earth, right? Because right? you, don't, you don't have to be taught to sin, you know how to do it. Your mom comes in and says, stop being selfish, quit hitting your sister and share your toys. That's our sin nature. When left to ourselves, we'll act that way. And so somebody else has to come in with truth and teach us what's right. That's because we are by nature sinners. Well, that, there's a big ramification, a big implication of that sin. And that sin separates us from God, which means that if that sin is not dealt with, I will wind up being separated from God forever in hell, right? Now, this is, this is what happens. It's sometimes hard for us to think that way about ourselves because we tend to be good people. I bet you you're a good person. 
Uh, most people who would get up on a beautiful week, weekend and go to church are good people, right? Here's the problem. God's standard is not good. His standard is perfection. So good always has imperfection in it, right? You can be good but imperfect. God is perfect, and perfection and imperfection cannot coexist. So being good does not deal with your sin. Being perfect does. And nobody thinks that they're perfect. And if you think you're perfect, that means you're a little bit self-righteous, which is a sin. So there, you're not, right? So you're, you're a sinner. Nobody thinks they're perfect. The only perfect person is Jesus Christ. So Jesus steps out of heaven shows up, born a virgin, the whole Christmas thing, lives a perfect life, never sins, never says anything wrong, never drops the F-bomb, never has a dirty thought, never is selfish. He lives a perfect life. He, therefore, is the only one who can take our place and take our sin. So he, because he's perfect, he can pay a debt he doesn't owe for you and I who owe a debt that we can't pay. That's why Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He offered himself. Jesus was not murdered. He was not executed. He wasn't caught up in some political thing. He didn't commit suicide. He heroically sacrificed his life. He was a Marine that jumped on a grenade to save his buddies. He was the firefighters going up the stairs of the Twin Towers on 9-11. They gave their lives for us, right? So Paul says, hey, there's something that's of first importance, a big, big deal, that Christ died. He laid down his life for our sins. There's a reason that he did that. He's the only one that can forgive us and the only one that can make the payment and the only one that could rescue us from our eternal destiny, which would have been hell if Jesus didn't intervene and if we don't accept his salvation. So he died, and then he goes on, so we call that the death, and then he says the second piece of it is he was buried, right? So the, this first important thing is three pieces. One, he died and he was buried. Now that's a big deal, that he was actually buried. It's a big deal because there's a rumor that's been around since Jesus' death that maybe he didn't really die. Maybe he was just unconscious, right? And they got him down and they nursed him back to life a little bit and, and then he rose again, right? So there's, it's so unbelievable that forever people have been trying to explain how it didn't really happen. And the Apostle Paul says, no, he was buried. He was dead, Right? His mom thought he was dead. The disciples thought he was dead. The Romans thought he was dead. The Jews thought he was dead. Joseph and Nicodemus, who got his body off the cross, they said he was dead. All of these women that were making these spices and helped bury him, they all said he was dead. Like he was buried as a dead person. So he died for our sins. He was buried. Then it goes on, and he says this, and... He raised again on the third day. It's huge. Because many, many good people have died for other people. There's all kinds of heroes that have done that, who've given their life for you and me in some way. Many of them were buried. We go to their graves. We, we remember them, and we should. That's a very appropriate thing to do. But only one got up again. And Paul says, it, on, on, at the foundation of everything is that gospel or that truth, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you don't have that as the foundation, everything else has to go away. So he goes on and he says this in verse 6, he says, after that, after he was raised again on the third day, he appeared to more than 500 of his brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. So he's writing this to one of the early churches. He's like, a lot of these guys are still alive. Go ask them. If they saw the whole thing. They'll, they'll be a witness for it. Uh, verse 7, then he appeared to James, that's his brother, and to the apostles, and last of all, to me, right? Verse 12, but if it is preached that Christ is raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection from the dead? And then he starts pressing into this. Verse 13, look at this. Real interesting what he says. He says, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. 
And if Christ hasn't been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. That's fascinating. You pull the resurrection, then our, what, everything we're saying is useless and everything you're doing is useless. All the ways that you put your hope in Jesus or your hope in an afterlife, or the, that's all kind of like useless because he's, he's another good person who has died and that's it. So believing in him as God or trusting him as God, that's going to get us nowhere. So our preaching is just so is our faith. Then he goes on, he goes, more than that, we then are found to be false witnesses about God. Now that's fascinating. So he says, if he hasn't raised again from the dead, everything we've taught you about God is a lie and everything Jesus said about himself is a lie because he claimed to be God. So all of that's gone. Everything that we said is gone. All the promises Jesus made are God promises, things that only God can do. So this, like all that stuff about hope and help and salvation and, and prayer and, and heaven, that's all gotta come off the table because the guy who said it like made it up and that's all a lie, right? And he goes on, he kind of elaborates on this a little bit. And next verse he says this, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Your faith is futile. Let me, let me uh, give you an example of this so it makes sense. So he's saying like the stuff you do because you believe Jesus is God is all worthless. So as an example, prayer. Like prayer would be worthless, useless, futile to do it, right? So Jesus taught this through the Bible. He would have said this. He would have said, when, when you pray, if you're a follower of me, if I have forgiven your sins and you've allowed me to define and direct your life, you're my follower, then when you pray, this is what happens. When you pray, you actually enter into the throne room of God. You go into God's throne room and you spiritually look God in the eye and you make your request known to me. So you, you enter in, I know you because you're, you're one of my children now. You, your sins are forgiven, you're a son or a daughter of God. So I know you, you show up. Hey Steve, hey Bill, hello Father. Listen, I, something's on my heart. I want to, and, and Jesus says, make your request known to God. Cast all of your anxiety on me, I care for you. I'm worried about this. I'm not sure what to do about that. I'm praying for my friend. It's called intercession when I pray for someone else, right? And so we believe that because Jesus is alive and he knows us, that he hears us personally, cares for us individually, and has the power to do something about that. Like we would believe all of that because Jesus taught us that. So Paul's saying, if Christ didn't raise from the dead, he's just another good guy that died. Well, that's all futile as an example. Like we would be left with, like we, we say this a lot in our culture, we'll, we'll say like my, our thoughts and prayers are with you. Well, if there's no God, then just think about it for a second. I push into it like my thoughts, and usually when we say prayers, we mean thoughts. So my thoughts, where do they, where do they go? Who hears them? How are they like connected to the person I'm thinking about? Right? Because if you start thinking about it, like if, if my thoughts could improve your situation. Well, I would do that for you. Right? I love you. A bunch of us are friends. If my, if my friend was sick or having a hard time, if I could thank you better, I would. Be like, you know, I thought you better and you were. If I could think my own, you know, let's have positive thinking. Well, if I could positive think my life to be the way that I want it to be, I would totally be into that. Right? Well, if Jesus never raised from the dead, that's kind of where we're at. Like, I'm thinking thoughts. If he rose from the dead, then all-powerful God is hearing it and connecting it. See what I mean? So that's an example where, where Paul's like, well, that would be futile. He goes on, he said, and you're still in your sins. 
So there's no forg- if he didn't raise from the dead, there's no forgiveness of sin, which, which means that the, the ugliest moment of our life is what you're defined by. That's what that would mean. So the, the whole idea of like going to heaven, being forgiven, the whole idea of being reborn or born again, those, that's actually Jesus' word, born again. Like that, that, that whole thing would be off the table, the whole new creation thing and starting over, that all comes from Jesus' teachings. So if you don't have that, then, then what you have is your ugliest moment is what defines you. That's the way that our culture works. We do this to celebrities all the time. So we would look and say, remember when Britney Spears freaked out? And her, uh, remember when Kanye went up and yelled at Taylor? Like our ugliest, we define them then by our, their ugliest moments, right? So that'd be true of us because we're still in our sin because he's just a good guy, it's not God, right? Then all those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. The Bible says that if you're a Christ follower, when you die, the moment you die, you're present with the Lord. So that's all off the table. All the heavens off the table. And he says, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. If we believe that Abraham Lincoln is God, Right? That's just what he's saying. It's like if you believe that a good guy is God, well, that's kind of silly. If I believe George Washington is God, he was a great man. You're right, he was. He, great, grateful for him. But do you believe he's God praying to George Washington? And Paul's like, well, we would, that's like pitiful. Like you should be pitied. Now, if he rose again from the dead, it's all legit. If there was no resurrection, then it changes everything. So what, what Paul does, it's really fascinating when you, when you think it through. What Paul does is he, he kind of puts us in a position where it, it's a little bit of a take it or leave it kind of a thing. He's like, this either, this either happened and we believe it and trust it, or it didn't happen and, and it's all lies and foolishness, his words, like lies, you know, our witness is false and you're to be pitied, it's lies and foolishness. And he kind of puts us in this position where you and I, on a personal level, kind of have to decide if we believe Jesus rose again from the dead. Now, I can tell you that for me, this is kind of how this played out in my life. I, I, when I didn't accept, I, I didn't become a Christ follower until I was a junior in college. And I was, I was raised in the church, not a healthy church. They did a bunch of weird stuff, but they were very sincere people, just kind of like weird. And then I was raised by very sincere and faithful parents who were not weird. And so I had a, a good example to look at in my mom and dad. My mom and dad sent me to a religious school. I went through religious school the whole way through. So I actually knew the Bible pretty well. But I didn't care about it, and I wasn't following it and living by it. And when, when I was in, uh, in college, through a, a series of conversation with friends, this all came to like a crescendo for me one night. And so I was sitting in the middle of a soccer field in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, in the middle of the night, figuring out, do I believe this stuff or not? And, and I started weighing it. This is the way my brain works. Yours probably works different, but this is the way my brain works. I start weighing it, and I'm thinking this. I'm thinking... Either he rose from the dead and he's God, and if he's God, like I better start responding to him differently because he's God, or this is all a bunch of like bunk, and I need to pull God out of my life because it's all, you know, foolishness, pity, it's all like ridiculous. The whole thing's like a fairy tale. And I thought, I, I, I have to like come to grips with this because I'm kind of bouncing in, popping the church, working the edges of this, but none of, neither directions really defining me. So I started weighing it. Like I said, so it's the way my brain works. So I start weighing it and I think, okay, if I pulled God out of my life, he's just a, a good guy that died and I pull him out of my life, what would I live for then, Right? And I thought, well, you would, you would live for life itself. 
So you would just get as much out of life as you possibly can, kind of a yo-yo, YOLO kind of a, a life, you know, and, and, and you would just try to make money, I guess, so you can do what you want and try to have sex with as many people as you can pull off and, and like, just kind of do that kind of a life. And for me, what happened is I knew some people like that. And, and I, I, they, they had money and they were really into that and they were just real into like sleeping around. And, and I thought, well, they're, they were never really happy. Like they, they were kind of self-centered and egotistical and liked to show off their money because it's all that they had. And they had lots of sex, but they had like no relationships. Because I think a lot of times the sex was somebody chasing the money kind of thing. And so they, they were, like, even, even back then when I was young, like, it was still, like, it was like the 50-year-old the guy trying to act like he was 22. Even then it was creepy, <laughs> you know? It's like, why do you dress like that? And their, your hair plugs aren't working. Like, that kind of stuff. Like, you're just like, eh. And so I thought, I don't want that. Like, that's not appealing to me at all. Well, then, thankfully, I had the example of my mom and dad. And they believed all this, and they, it defined and directed them. So they didn't have, my dad worked in a factory, so we didn't have a ton, you know, but we got by just fine. He had dream. everybody dreams of having a boat, you know, kind of a thing. So he had dreams and stuff. He just wasn't going to live for it. And we, we had a fine life, but my mom and dad were happy. They were very generous people. They enjoyed being generous. They had a set of deep, deep friends uh, people who are like second parents to me, right? They were loved. And I thought, well, I, 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 they loved each other, married for 52 years before they went home to be with the Lord. They, I'm like, I think, I, I think that looks better to me, right? I, I thought about this prayer thing as an example. Like, I'm like, well, if there's no prayer, there's nobody to reach out to, then I guess... I am the end of the line, like what I think and what power I'm able to muster. And I'll be honest with you, I looked at that and I thought, I, I wouldn't bank on me if I was me. Like I, I know myself, I, I can't break a bad habit, let alone change somebody's life. And so the whole idea of a higher power and a God who heard me and loved me was like a big deal, right? And then I, I thought, well, if you pull God out, then you have to pull the whole idea of a creator out. That's got to go, right? Because Jesus said he's the creator, so if he's not God, he's not that. And, and I thought, well, if he's not a creator, if you just do the, run the math on it, that means that we're just kind of byproducts of a cold, natural process. So nature rolls on I kick the bucket and somebody else just takes my place and that's that. If you put a creator in, the cre this is a little sidetrack, but this is fun. The creator thing's a blast because Jesus said, I created you and I created you on purpose. So this is what the Bible says. This is fun. The Bible says this. The Bible says, you were thought about and planned before the foundations of the earth were laid. So God is the ultimate project manager. So in detail, he mapped everything out, including you. So God knew when you were going to show up on the planet and, and where you're going to show up on the planet, and he wanted you there. So when you were conceived in your mother's womb, the Bible says God knit you together. He created your mind. He created your emotions. He created your, your body he put you together and he preordained good works for you to do. You know what that means? That means that there are things on the planet that you and you alone can do. You are the only one that can accomplish what God meant for you to accomplish and God timed your arrival on the planet way ahead of time, pre-planned it. So on this little sliver of time in this little piece of dirt, you showed up because there were good works that he pre pre-ordered for you to do. So you are not, you know, one of six or seven billion faceless people. You are a custom one-off from God. And the Bible says that you're created in his image. So you can interact with God. That, that means human beings are different. We have souls. 
So the rest of creation doesn't have a soul. We're completely different. Human beings are the only part of, of nature that desire to pray, desire to worship, and desire to know their creator. We're the only things like that. Trees don't go to church, dogs don't pray, and your cat's from the devil, right? So that, that, that yeah, that's in the Bible if you read it the way you want to. But, but it's all, right? So you are it. So like that whole thing, like there's a God who knows me, who loves me, who intended for me, who made me this way specifically for me to be this way because only I can do what he created for me to do. That's all gone if there's no resurrection, see. And I started weighing this stuff out and I came to a faith decision. Faith is choosing to believe in what you cannot and will not ever fully understand. And faith is usually attached to a person, right? So anybody who's ever been married, you, when you got married, when I married my wife Heidi, I made a faith decision. I chose to believe in what I could not and would not ever fully understand. Heidi and I had no idea what we were getting ourselves into. We only knew who we were going to be with in the middle of that. I put my faith in Heidi, and then we launched out into life. And that has worked out fantastic for me. I think she's a little let down, but I have thought it's great the whole time. So I looked and I thought, okay, this is a faith decision. It takes as much faith to believe that there's a God than it takes to believe that there's not a God. If you looked at me and said, Jeff, prove to me that there's a God, I would show you volume upon volume upon volume libraries of evidence that there's a God. But if you cornered me and said, yeah, but you can prove Jesus existed, everybody agrees with that. You can prove Jesus died, everybody agrees with that. You can prove that he was buried, everybody agrees with that. But you believing he's God is an act of faith. If you cornered me, I'd have to look at you and say, you know what, you're right. I've chosen to believe what I cannot and do not fully understand. And then I would point back at you and I would say, prove to me there is no God. And you would show me some evidence that you think that there's no God and we'd have all these conversations and I would look at you finally and I'd put you in a corner and I would say, yeah, but you don't really know that you are by faith accepting that there is no God. You're choosing that by faith. And if you were intellectually honest, you would have to look at me and say, yeah, you're right. So you have faith there is no God. I have faith that there is a God. It's a jump ball. I choose to place my faith in the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. I choose to believe what his mother believed. She believed he was God. I choose to believe what his brother believed. He believed that he was God. I choose to believe what his friends believed. They believed he was God. They all lost their lives for it. I, I, I choose to believe what the Roman guards who executed him believed. When Jesus died, there was an earthquake and there was an eclipse, and the very men who executed him who were standing there looked at him and said, surely this was the Son of God. I choose to agree with the guys that killed him. They all believed, and I decided to too, because the idea that my life will be devoid of God. Is it, I just don't want to live that way. So I choose to believe that he is God. Well, wait a minute, there's big ramifications to that. It means my life is not my own. It means that everything he says about sin and forgiveness, I have to act on. It means that everything he promised me, he'll give me too. But if I choose to believe that he's God then I choose to follow him as the risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, right? Jesus rose from the dead, hands down, rose from the dead. It's all over the place. But in many ways, that doesn't matter unless you believe it. So it's, it's, your, it's your belief, your personal decision. You know, all the information in the world I did, but I didn't believe it until I chose to place my faith in Christ. Later on, the same writer, Paul, 
in Romans, he says this. He said, when we confess with our mouth, or we agree, right? When we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, ready? And believe in our heart, here it is, that God raised him from the dead. We will be saved. Because I'm not accepting Jesus' example. I'm not accepting him as my role model. I'm, I'm accepting him as my God. And when I worship him, when I ask for and receive the forgiveness of my sin, then my soul, right, is put into his care and I follow him. What do you believe about that? What do you believe about the resurrection, right? Do you believe that that's God? And if that's God, what are the ramifications on your life? You know, for some of us, we believe that, but it's almost an echo in the past. When we think about our relationship with God, it's something that we remember, not really something that we participate in. And so we'll remember, you remember when we were young, we first got married, and we went to church, and we're involved with our friends, and how happy we were, and now the career, and the kid, and... Do you believe, would you return to that resurrected? I remember when I was a teenager and I was with the youth group and it was fun. I went on this mission trip. We went to this conference and it was, I was so spiritual back then. Maybe you need to come home to that belief. Not just know it, but be anchored in it. Christ defines and directs our life. And boy, I hope for all of us that we rest in it, right? I need to know I need to know, I'm grateful that I know that there's a power greater than me that hears me and loves me and cares about me. That when I lose a loved one, that they're entrusted, if they know Christ, they're entrusted in His care, in His hands. That somebody hears me when I pray, right? Someone that, I, that I'm here on purpose. That's all because of the, the things of first importance Christ died for our sins, he was buried, and he rose again in three days. Can I pray for you? Jesus, we love you, and we are grateful to you for your love for us. When I think about the, the links that you went to, God, to reach to us, to save us, to help us, it's really overwhelming to think about, and we're just grateful, God, to you and for you. And God, thank you that we don't worship a memory or a memorial or a myth. You are a risen, living Savior who hears us, is willing to forgive us, and accepts us now. So we love you, Jesus. You have freed us. You freed us from our sin. You freed us from our hopelessness. You freed us from our insecurity. And you did that by offering your life by your own authority and taking it up again. We love you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.